Jeff Goldblum is just annoying in all aspects. <laughs> You're anti Jeff Goldblum. Mandy loves Jeff Goldblum. Are you saying you also <laughs> like Jeff Goldblum, or the audio is working? Uh, both. Okay, so Justin <laughs> likes Jeff Goldblum, and the audio is now working. I'm John Mahias in New York City. I'm Zach Smith, and I'm in L.A. And we'd art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... You know, sometimes I want to look people in the eye, and then sometimes I'm like... I'd rather observe you from 100 paces. Today our guest is Jane Dixon talking about... I hope to make them not totally terrifying, but there's always something in there that I'm anxious about. Well, I went to the Halloween parade and I did see a, a Terrence Coe as well as many little um, Frida Kahlo's. Wait, someone was oh, dressed man. as Terrence Coe? Yes. What does Terrence Coe look like? Well, this Terrence Coe was all dressed in white with a long white coat, but he seemed to have a white wig, and I'm not sure of Terrence Coe, actually. Does he dye his hair white? I don't know. I know his paintings, but I have no idea what he looks like. Like, how did you know he it was supposed to be Terrence in, Coe? Because he always dresses in white. Oh. But in, in the guy's mind, was he Terrence Coe, or just you decided he was Terrence Coe? I didn't interview him, but okay. this was, we were going to a party that was near the parade, so we went through the parade. We also saw, you know, Michael Jackson and Elvis, but there were a million zombies, a lot of Where's Waldos, and then... Yeah, I saw a lot of Waldos, too. I don't understand why, why Waldo is having a renaissance right now. Somebody had a special on Waldo costumes, I'm betting. Mm. People spent so much on costumes, I was very impressed. Yeah, the Halloween parade's a big deal, like... Zombies are like, I feel like the sliding scale one. Like how hard do you want to try? Because you can just like not try at all. Mm-hmm. Just put black circles around your eyes. And we're in Jane Dixon's really, really nice apartment. It's fabulous. The angle you have, I can only see the door and out the window. So it looks like everyone else's apartment. It's just a white wall. <laughs> Trust me. It's really, really, really nice. The nicest apartment ever. So Jane, you succeeded. <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> Well, for one thing, we got this place 25 years ago. All right. So. When people were like, you going to live where? Where are it's you? It's really dangerous. Tribeca. Oh, yeah. Tribeca. <laughs> getting, people getting knifed in the streets. <laughs> it was a big step up from Times Square, where my children were both born. When I first moved to New York, I got a job on the first computer light board in Times Square in, like, 79. So I worked the night shift on weekends in Times Square, doing animations. And then in 81, we got a loft in Times Square. So we were there till 93, till the renovation of Times Square made them tear down our building. And then we moved down here for the schools. In 93, you were in Tribeca, but Tribeca was nice in 93, wasn't it? It was, but not in North Tribeca. Up near Canal was still crappy. All right. I mean, compared to Times Square, it was yeah. the suburbs. It was paradise. I, when I first moved to New York, I lived on Duane Street in 78. And then by 81, we moved to Times Square because we thought Tribeca was too bourgeois. <laughs> because the food emporium was opening in the neighborhood. But then by 93, we were like, uh, with two little kids, I'm okay with a food emporium. And they could walk to public school. <laughs> Let's start in 78 with uh, moving to New York. Where are you moving from? Boston. And you were going to school in Boston? I was going to school in Boston, and then they hired me back as a teaching assistant the year after I graduated, so I stayed there and worked for one year, which was one of the more miserable years of my life. So were you from there? I'm originally from Chicago. Did you decide to go to Boston because of something about Boston at that time, or was it just like wanting to get away? After high school, I couldn't figure out what I was going to do with my life. And my mother, by this point, was living in Paris. And she said, if you don't figure out what you're going to do, I'm going to bring you home to Paris. And I was like, bring me home to Paris. Great. So I, I went to the <laughs> Bazaar for a year when I was 18 and fought with my mother all year. And I was like, OK, we got that out of our systems. And I spent a lot of time practicing smoking Golois and drinking red wine and espressos at lunch and then, you know, and practicing my French with all the other foreign foreigners. And after a while I thought, this, this art thing, this is really hard because, you know, I would work all morning, but then after lunch I'd be a little buzzed and sometimes I got back to the studio and sometimes I didn't. And 
At the time, I didn't understand that actually drinking in cafes actually was part of being an artist. I thought it meant that I was too much of a slacker. So I decided maybe I shouldn't be an artist, and I went to university in Boston because my older brother was already there. So so everything is backwards with you. Like, you were... <laughs> <laughs> it's still my problem. <laughs> and while I was in Paris... A Korean guy took me aside and he goes, you're American, aren't you? I said, yeah, this is in French. And then he goes, go to New York. Nothing's happening in Paris. New York is where it's happening. I'm only here because my, you know, my visa ran out. Go to New York. And I was like, hmm, really? So I went to Boston first. But as soon as I got to Boston, I was like, I'm going to New York. Okay, so I want to go backwards even more because uh, uh, your mom's in Paris, but you're not French. Like your brother's, I'm like, I want to know where, what's the genesis of this family situation? What was your life growing up like? My father was from Scotland. He was from Glasgow and he came to America after World War II. Um, so he was an immigrant and my mother's family were German Jews from originally New Orleans. They'd been in the U.S. since before the Civil War, but they always felt like they were every generation on my mother's side they would marry an immigrant off the boat another German Jew so in every generation they acted like we just got here we don't know anybody but each other and very clannish in Chicago and they were like let's if we're going to be clannish we'll go Scottish well that would my you know my mother broke the mold and married a, a, a Scottish guy who was half Protestant and half Catholic in a place where that was really dangerous. So he was like, why not marry a Jew and really mix it up? My mother used to go, you should really marry a Muslim and then we could sort of cover the, the uh, religious spectrum. You messed that up. <laughs> you know, maybe my next husband. But they got divorced when I was like 14 or 15 and my father moved to Miami and my mother moved to Paris because she had grown up reading Hemingway novels and thought that sounded good. She didn't realize we weren't in that era anymore. But she lived there for 30 years. She lived there for the rest of her life. So how old were you when she moved to Paris? 15. Okay, so you were kind of in high school and stuff. Yes, I didn't go to high school there. So when you were young, what did you think you were going to do? Nothing or art or something else? You know, I always thought I was going to be an artist and or a lion tamer and or a ballerina. You know, a combination of those three. You went with the most practical of yes. the three of those things. <laughs> I, you know, and then, and then in college, I thought for a minute I might be um, an anthropologist. And I thought that meant I was going to get to go to a tropical island and be naked the whole time. And then when I discovered at university that actually I was going to spend the rest of my life in a library, I was like, mm, maybe not. I'll, I'll read about Margaret Mead, but I guess I can't be her anymore. Aww. And the part about going and living with baboons or lions, you know, I, I realized that was my sort of antisocial early adolescent years where I was like, fuck all you people. I'm going to go live with lions. Fuck all you people, literally. Literally. <laughs> I'm going to go live with lions. But then I was like, you know, there's some people that aren't so bad. I think I'll, I'll mingle a little here. So having a completely successful life as an artist in New York was like the string of a bunch of broken dreams of <laughs> other. You're like, lion tamer, can't be a lion tamer, can't be a ballerina, can't be an anthropologist who's naked on an island. So I guess I'll just be an artist in New York. Yeah, I remember that whenever I would say in, in college, teachers would always go, what are you going to do when you finish school? And I'd go, I'm going to go to New York and be an artist. And particularly in Boston, they're paranoid of New York and they'd go, <gasps> <laughs> you can't go to New York. They eat young girls for breakfast in New York. You'll be torn from limb to limb. It's too dangerous. You can't go there. And I think, well, what have I got to lose? You know, let me give it a whirl. And I can always come back to Boston or wherever afterwards if it doesn't work. So I felt like, you know, maybe for at least 10 years, I was like, I'm sort of here on probation. I'm just going to act as if, you know, I'm in. You know, if things don't work out, I'll fold my tents and go off somewhere else. I always thought I would have a West Coast episode. You know, as, as a Midwesterner, I thought it was sort of a flip of the coin, East-West. I thought, I'll start in the East, but I'm going to go to the West at some point. 
I did spend one semester teaching at Cal State Northridge just because I really wanted to paint L.A., and I loved it. All my friends there go, you just love it because you're visiting if you really lived here all the time. You wouldn't love it, but... I'm still waiting for my West Coast life to begin. It's interesting because I feel like your paintings are kind of like, you're looking for these places where they eat little girls alive, and then you paint them, and then they're like, they're just these beautiful, like almost impressionist paintings of like, yeah, I was there, and it, you know, it's a beautiful place in its own, you know, like, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. No, that's very perceptive. I think I paint from fear. So it's like, Whatever freaks me out, I'm like, well, let me look at this a little more. And it's a way to um, make it tolerable. And so, you know, and also like, things that I'm pondering, I'll make paintings of. And sometimes I work out a way to deal with it. Sometimes they're just still terrifying. But <laughs> Is that true of all your paintings? I'm looking at this painting here. It's the highway and it's got trucks. It reminds me of like going on a road trip in the middle of America. Is this terrifying to you, just the the cars on the road here? Not this one in particular. (laughs) Well, I did these, this whole series of highways. They're all going to a vanishing point. They're all going slightly up, so you're sort of going up. You can't see where you're going. Mm. And yes, driving on big highways is often frightening, particularly around New York where it's really dense and in L.A., Driving is, actually, I started these in L.A., but I think of them as channeling the Midwest. You know, when I started this series, I called them out of here, and I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here, out of New York. So (laughs) I went on these visual road trips, but also I was teaching up in Westchester and commuting in the car, and it was sort of stressful. And so I wasn't enjoying my commute, but I was trying to try to find a way to enjoy it visually because I was spending more time than I wanted behind the wheel. And I would say that all of my work is how we relate to the built environment. It's exploring how we relate to the built environment. So some of these early ones have like, you know, modular housing that's zipping down the highway. And this one has God, which is guaranteed overnight delivery, but it's like 1-800-DIAL-GOD. Now it's, you know... www.god.com. So actually, I did that when we were just starting the war in Iraq, and I was thinking about religion, and this big God truck looks like it's sort of careening off the road. So some, you know, I hope to make them not totally terrifying, but there's always something in there that I'm anxious about, whether it's crowds and New Year's Eve or the tunnels and bridges of New York, which are... You know, are, there, are there crowds on New Year's Eve terrifying to you? I don't like crowds. Yes, I find, I get... I, yeah, you're the person that did the mosaics in Times Square of the joy and jubilation of the mosaic of Times Square of the party goers and they've got true, their hats. But they're based which I just on saw a, last night. <laughs> they're based on a series that was much darker, the original series. And we used, when we lived in Times Square, you either had to be out of, we had to either go away for 24 hours of New Year's Eve because we were inside the police barricades. So it was incredibly noisy and these horns would be going, eh, eh, <laughs> For 24 hours, it seemed like we had a, you know, deranged sheep under our window. So it, that, being, living in it was kind of horrifying. And yeah, really drunk masses are not my my go-to thing. Like last night, we went partly to, we went to the edges of the Halloween parade and I didn't want to get in the middle because once I start to feel trapped in those crowds, I don't like it. <laughs> right, no, I didn't, I didn't mention it before, but I was thinking how you could have done that because I don't like it. Just everyone should like, like shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, like it's that. very claustrophobic. Sure. The same as I've been painting Las Vegas and I'm totally freaked out by gambling. The way that you look at, at these like, places you're not of that world but you're also not critical of it it's almost like you're just taking it and you're putting it in a place where you can think about it almost in a quieter way like they seem like in a weird way no matter how loud the subject they're quiet paintings like they have a certain kind of uh sparkly look to them somehow like i don't feel like you're satirizing these places even though you're not part of them you know yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure them out, not in a judgmental way. It's like, I'm going to make my decision, but 
I'm trying to sort of bring into focus very ordinary parts of our world in a way that you can look at it and, you know, to make a, a space for you, the viewer, to contemplate whatever it is, highways, gambling, tunnels, strippers, and I don't want to tell you what you should think. Because also all the things that I paint are things that, I mean, I said I work from fear, but they have to all be things that I'm ambivalent about. So they have to be also in, attractive. Like getting out of town, that's attractive as a fantasy. And once in a while, the reality is the beautiful open road and it's good weather and no traffic. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's hell. You're trapped. Everybody else is on the road and the weather sucks and there's been an accident and you're like, why the fuck did I come out here? I'm interested in things that I'm ambivalent about and I want to present that. And if it's something that's just horrifying and tragic, I don't know what to do with it. The same as if there's something that's just a vase of roses or something where it's like, yeah, it's great. And I have nothing to add to that. Mm, That's interesting. So I'm interested in this middle ground of things that, you know, like when I started doing strippers, I thought, oh, I'm a feminist and this is terrible. And then a friend of mine was just stripping her way through Columbia and she's now an art historian. And she was like, no, it's, you know, it's really a great trip and it's, you know, a lot of power and for both, you know, the consumer and the stripper, it's a complicated transaction and it's not all bad. It's not all good. So I'm hoping to bring that up where you go look at it and go, hmm, what do I think about? Where am I morally with this? Yeah. Where am I about commercial sex? These girls are beautiful. They're young, they're beautiful. Right. I'm sure Zach has some thoughts about this. I mean, I don't ever make an effort not to editorialize in my paintings. Mine are very subjective, and so I'm just like, I like strippers. Strip clubs, I could care less about, but strippers, I love them. They're my friends. And then when I like paint people, if I don't like them, I make them look terrible and hideous. Uh, so I'm just as a really judgmental painter. But John, you're a really judgmental, you're an expressionist, really. Like you're a very judgmental drawer and printmaker. You're always editorializing. That's true. So it's interesting that Jane, you're just taking a very, like these things take like a, like a month at least to make, like the, the paintings, right? Or like weeks. Um. I work on several things at once always, so it's very hard to say. It's not like I sit down and just do this painting. Things work better for me if I'm working on a bunch of them. And particularly, well, if I just work on one painting, then I I sort of crush it. Right. If I have several, I can think, ah, maybe this one, you know, if this doesn't work out, I don't care. I can, maybe the the other one will work. Whereas if I'm like, this is the only painting and it's got to be great, I put my whole ego into it, it it always dies. So I just work on a lot of things. And also, particularly with oil on AstroTurf, it takes a while to dry. So I clog one up, and then I go and clog the next one up, and then the next one, and then eventually I can go back to the first one. It's dried a little bit. Because what I was thinking is that, like, you know, if you're spending a lot of time on one image, then you're thinking about it the whole time you're painting. Like, painting is an opportunity to think about the subject of the painting. Absolutely. And I do, I do a lot of versions often of something. So I'll, you know, I'll start out thinking, oh, I'm against commercial sex. This is terrible. And then I start drawing and I'm like, oh, but they're so beautiful. And my understanding of the subject changes as I'm delving into it further. So they might start off on one thing and end up somewhere else. I did a whole series of from the view from the top of the Ferris wheel at Coney Island that I was doing right before the last economic crash in 2008. And having lived long enough to be through, you know, experienced a couple of other bank crashes, in 2007, that sort of rah-rah, everybody's making money is no matter what you do. I thought, I've been here before, we've been here before, this is going to end badly. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do the top of the Ferris wheel, you know, that moment where your stomach is up in your mouth and you're like, holy shit, because that's how I felt the economy was. But then the paintings, again, they're really beautiful. They're not, I thought I was making these, you know, economic allegories. And then the end, they don't have any, so I ended up calling them dreamland because they ended up being like, 
I was right. The economy just tanked, and that sucks. But I'm somehow in outer space. You know, it was like <laughs> I sort of took off from the top of the Ferris wheel in the way that people that make Ferris wheels want you to. And I was like, I'm just floating over the city, admiring all these little spinning things down below. So what I think I'm doing and what I end up doing is not necessarily the same. And so maybe, I, I'm, as you're saying how you both are very opinionated, I'm thinking maybe that's a male-female thing, too, that guys are more like, this oh, is no. who I am, and I deal <laughs> with it, and I'm more like, well, I don't know, I sort of think this, but I don't know. And now I've got something to think about, yeah. I mean, I, I do know like a, a lot of female painters who, who make what I think they would call opinionated work, and which I think is pretty opinionated. But I do think that, like, they may have also be conscious of seizing on something that is traditionally a male territory in that. Like they're like, I'm, I'm owning that now. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the pictures that you have, which have people's faces in them or have people in them. I feel like that's when you feel the most contrast between the sort of light and not light as in like light, like it's like a light touch, but light as in the light is very important in the paintings. This sort of like real sense of color and light and like just aestheticizing the scene and then what the scene means for, for better or worse. Like the, the people always seem like the, the place where you feel like the gears grinding in an interesting way. Like I'm looking at the carnival one where there's like a whole bunch of people in different colored shirts, like a yellow shirt and orange shirt. And they're like in front of the spinum, the carnival games. They're looking back at the camera like one person's like, why are like you could tell it's kind of like, why are you taking a photo of me? The look mm -hmm. on their face. But at the same time, it's just like a beautiful painting. The painting of the picture has no, no violence in it. But this, the thing depicted is like. What the fuck are you looking at is what the guy's attitude yeah, is. Yeah. And also like in the, in the back behind him, there's like a man looking around the corner and he's got his weird bunny prize behind him. So it's like the bunny is looking at him in, in all the ones that have people in them are the ones that have like the most of that, like meshing of like, what's going on here? You know, like the style and the content are right there. I go back and forth between focusing on people and then emptiness. But in the empty ones, it's always something like a highway that implies, you know, they, they feel like stages for people. There's always a human presence. But when I was young, I did a, a lot of portraits and then I stopped and just was doing the scene. Like when I did the series of Las Vegas, I don't know if you've seen those. When people came to look at them at first, they were like, you actually don't care about that person, and you know, at the slot machine. So maybe... Get rid so when they ended up, all the figures are way far away because it was true that I was just sort of interested in them almost as, you know, scale models and architectural drawings. It's like there's a person there, but I don't know that person and I'm not really trying to tell you their story there. They could be anybody. So move them away. So I, it's, it's an interesting point that I'm, yeah, I, I, mean, I go back and forth on you know, sometimes I want to look people in the eye and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I think I'd rather, you know, observe you from a hundred paces. <laughs> and as far as light, I think when I first got this job of working on this, you know, electronic light board in Times Square on the night shift, like that was, I was looking at a black early computer screen and making images with colored lights. And at the time I thought, this is just my day job. It was actually my night shift job, but you know, this is not going to affect my work at all. But really it's, you know, everything I've done since has been thinking about light, particularly artificial light. Like, what was the light board displaying? It was, there's now a Sony sign there. It's at, was at one time square above the zipper. So it's where the ball drops on New Year's Eve. And they were just renting out ad time. So I would do ads for Coca-Cola and Bidewee and uh, Studio 54. We traded advertising so we could all go from when we turned off the sign on Saturday night, we'd go to Studio 54. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we advertised Warhol's movie, the last one that he did, 
remember his producer coming, and I thought, oh, this guy's so cute. He asked me out. He didn't. Um, so it was just, you know, anybody who wanted to pay for an ad, and they could run it as often as they wanted or not. Were they words or pictures? They were pictures? Both. And would you design them, yeah. or you would just translate what was designed into dots? Um, we worked both ways so that, you know, you could come, you know, Coke would come in with a storyboard and say, it has to be the Coke logo and the ball's going to, you know, the bottle's going to spin around and then bubbles will come out or something. It was a very crude sign. It was 20 by 40 feet. It, they, they used to have them also like at Madison Square Garden and at other sporting events, but it was, it was primitive animation. Um, sometimes they, people come in with an idea and I would design it. And at the time, it was before there were any um, digitized typefaces. So one of the main things that I worked on was, oh, if I'm going to do the word Coke in their typeface, let me do the whole alphabet so that we can use that typeface again if we want. And then I, I did stuff for my friends extracurricularly. So I did like titles for... Uh, Scott and Beth B movies. I did ads for different people's events. I did an ad, an animated ad of three card Monty hands for the Times Square show, which was a collab project that we did in 1980. And I persuaded my boss to let me run it every 20 minutes for the whole month. So it was like three, you know, the cards and then these hands came in and swirl the cards around and it would reveal, you know, information and that was the wipe. And then I designed the titles for Wild Style, this right. film that Charlie did, because I was, you know, I was working as an animation designer. So as soon as he started working on the film, I said, I want to do titles and these are going to be fantastic and we're going to get graffiti artists to, to draw them. But I did the storyboard with Charlie because he, we, the sign was very primitive, so we had all these sort of primitive wipes, like explosions. And if you look at wild-style animation was hand-drawn, but it's using the same stuff. And then after that, I worked with the Public Art Fund and did a whole artist series that was one artist per month. It went on for six years. I just curated the first year, and I invited Keith Haring, who was completely unknown, to do one. And Jenny Holzer was doing... Paper Cups, this was her introduction to lights, and David Hammonds did one. And Yeah, that was huge. I remember hearing about that. And it really led to me getting to know the people at the MTA, which is 30 years later, they or 25 years later, doing these mosaics. Oh, that's the connection. There's so much to talk about there. Um, so I know. <laughs> like, we start with, like, you moved to New York. Your New York experience, like what was was the the light job the first job you had? I had studied a little bit of animation in college. Like my last year, I thought, you know, I might need to make a living doing something besides painting. So maybe animation's a good idea. Although in those days, people thought animation was dead. We didn't know it was going to have this huge resurgence. And as soon as I, I remember, I got to my brother's apartment he already lived in New York and as soon as I walked in the door he said oh this woman Susan Pitt called she wants you to call her back and she had been my teacher in college she now teaches at CalArts she may have just retired but she has been teaching at CalArts for a long time anyway she was working on a film and she hired me to work as a cell painter for her so I did that for my first six months in New York, I sit in, you know, at a light box in her gigantic loft in the middle of this huge loft doing little things. And then she premiered it at the Whitney and it was, you know, and it was a great experience. I learned a lot from her. And then I tried to get a couple of other animation jobs and <laughs> two jobs in a row. The guy at the end of the, you know, interview would go, you know, I don't have a job for you, but how about dinner? I was like, oh, there's all these creepy guys. One guy. So the guy you didn't want work. to ask you out from Studio 54 didn't and the, and gave you a job, and the guy you wanted to give you a job asked. It's always the way, right? I know. And then and then I had a one-day job for Epcot, working on animation for Epcot you know, in New York, but for you know Disney in Florida. And at the end of the day, the guy's like, 
you know, I just can't, I just can't hire you. And then he kissed me and I was uh. like, oh my God. <laughs> but then I answered an ad in the New York Times Ish. for this, you know, this animation, digital animation job. And actually I did end up dating that guy too. <laughs> You know, all these guys, the animators are real nerds, I have to say. And then a lot of the people that I worked with at that sign moved out to Hollywood and started special effects companies. And invite, they invited me to come with, but... The guy was like, yeah, and I want to tie you to my computer. And I was like, you know, S&M, I'm just not that into it. <laughs> and I really didn't want to learn programming. So, and also I started at the same time, I got a show at Fun Gallery, which was the first gallery in East Village. And I was like, okay, 19th century, 21st century, I'm going to go back to painting and goodbye computer animation. So I keep thinking maybe I'll have another episode of computer animation, but it hasn't happened yet. I just haven't had time. Right, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask about AstroTurf, painting on AstroTurf. How did that happen? I like challenges, technical challenges, and I like weird, rough surfaces. I like surfaces that actually bring, bring references to the work. I'm not interested in neutral surf surfaces like generic, you know, pre-gessoed canvas that you get that has the most anonymous surface it can come with and it's white. I don't know, that just it doesn't give me any place to start. It's somewhat boring and intimidating. And in 1980, I went to the materials for the arts because oh. I was going to do this labyrinth in Fashion Moda, which was this artist-run space in, at 149th Street. And I got these rolls of textured vinyl wall covering that I thought I was going to make my maze out of. And as soon as I started painting on this gray textured vinyl, right. I went, oh, this is much too nice to work on with kids. I'm keeping all of this. And I made the maze out of cardboard. But th what I realized with this gray textured vinyl was that I could just paint the lights so it was kind of I could do Times Square at night and I didn't have to fill in all that darkness I had this dark surface and I could just paint the lights so suddenly I swear I felt like Alice falling down the rabbit hole I was like in this new universe and I was like oh my god and I can do this and I can do that and I've been exploring that ever since so from textured vinyl wall covering then I started on very rough canvas or linen that was gesso black back in the day when you couldn't buy black gesso. I had to make black gesso. And then I went on to other weird materials. I painted on black garbage bags and sandpaper and carpet samples. And then the AstroTurf came about because I knew I wanted to paint the highways. And I had done all these little studies on linen. And they looked very like Corot. They looked like 19th century landscapes of superhighways. They weren't very interesting. Conceptually, yes. Visually, no. And a friend came over and looked at them and she goes, looks like you don't care about those trees because I like doing this sort of the hourglass shape of the V at the top of the sky and the V at the bottom of the road and then these triangles on either side were just green scribbles. And as soon as she said, looks like you don't care about those trees, I thought, you know, I don't. I just want the idea of tree blur. And I had just been in Home Depot, and I had been admiring these rolls that came down from the ceiling, and they're like eight feet wide and infinitely long. And I went, AstroTurf, I'm going to Home Depot. I'm going to buy that AstroTurf. And then I don't have to paint the green trees at all. I'll just paint the sky and paint the highway. <laughs> And but it's practical. It gives you the, you know, it's a simulacrum of nature. We know it's not nature, but it re you read it as, yeah, yeah, that's the plastic imitation of nature. We get it. And then now I discovered that AstroTurf comes in sand, it comes in gravel, it comes in swimming pool blue, it comes, and then of course for football stadiums you can get it in every color i just haven't gone with the yellow yet because you have to buy like 50 yards and i don't know where i put that much right astroturf. but if i get a really big commission i'm gonna go with go with yellow yeah <laughs> and i've also works. been painting in the last couple of years on uh, industrial felt 
which is, comes in all sorts of great colors and is a little less bulky than AstroTurf. AstroTurf is very heavy. That's its drawback. And once you use gel medium to glue it to the canvas, they're heavy paintings. A lot of these paintings like use kind of almost simplified shapes, but then the texture underneath it gives it a form of shading or rendering without you having to commit to a certain kind of brushstroke that would be your signature to make that rendering. Because this happens, like, if I just prime things with a brush, which and so it's not smooth. If you want, like, a shade on something, you can put it in there by hand, and then you can see, oh, this is how, how Jane makes hash marks. Mm -hmm. But if you let the texture do it, then it's almost like the surface itself is doing some of the description and it looks more almost random or it looks looks more natural in a weird way. Yeah, I, I really like how the the material fragments the stroke. Right. And and I actually did this series of Las Vegas and I did them on regular gessoed canvas and I was like, oh my God, my marks are showing. I was like, oh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you can see my mark. I realized that I just, for decades, let the surface, yeah, atomize my, my marks. And I kind of like the anonymity of that. Although I am sort of exploring mark making in some of this work. Yeah, I mean, when you can see the mark, okay, it's like going from like Syrah to Gauguin or something. Like the Syrah ones, like the, the, the atomized ones, it feels like there's... It's very different. I, I'm, I'm going to jump us. I'm going to rewind us again back to the to that cardboard maze. It seems like you were sort of in the ground floor of, of hip hop culture. You had Fab Five Freddy doing a rap in that cardboard maze. How did how did that happen? What what made you go to the Bronx and have Bronx kids run around a maze? Great question. 1980, the Times Square show was a really watershed event for collaborative projects and for us, we had been looking at Charlie and I and lots of downtown artists. Saul Witt has a lot of photos of graffiti from the late 70s. Everybody downtown had been seeing these amazing trains coming through and handball courts. And Charlie, who was then my boyfriend, Ahern, was trying to like, he was like, I want to make a film with these guys. Who are they? I got to find them. And David Hammonds and Fab Five and Keith Haring and all these amazing people just showed up at the Times Square show. Jeffrey Deitch showed up at the Times Square show. Jenny was already part of Colab. Kiki Smith was part of Colab. Tom Otternus. So we were already an interesting group. A lot of people coming out of the Whitney program, which I didn't go to, but a lot of Colab people did. So we met... Fred at the Times Square show in June of 1980, and immediately he and Charlie decided to make Wild Style. Um, Glenn O'Brien was already, and Edo were already making Downtown 81 with Basquiat. I think maybe I met Jean Michel also at the Times Square show. No, I think maybe I already knew him. It's hard to remember. But anyway, at that point, and, and Charlie cast. Patty Astor in Wild Style, and she decided to start Fun Gallery, and I was the only woman who ever did a one-person show. So I knew these guys from 1980. And then Stefan Eintz had started Fashion Moda in the South Bronx. As a group, collab people were interested in breaking away from minimalism and conceptualism, which were what ruled at that moment in the late 70s and wanted to do art that, you know, break out of the white cube and do bring art to the people and engage an audience beyond the typical upper middle class white gallery goers. So, you know, Charlie was trying to do it by making movies in the ghetto and, you know, he had already done a Kung Fu movie and he wanted to do the Bronx for his movie, but then Stefan Eintz had also opened a gallery. He had had a gallery called the Three Mercer Store in Soho, and when that closed, he went up to the Bronx partly because he could afford a big space there for very little, but also because he thought it was interesting to get out of lower Manhattan. So he offered me to do a one-person show. I'd been in a bunch of group shows, 
And I thought, there's a lot of kids hanging out here every day because there was no place particular for them to play. And they wanted to get into, they wanted to see what we were doing, but a lot of the downtown art up there, they couldn't relate to it. So I thought, I want to make a show that's going to drive kids crazy. And I thought, if I make a labyrinth, it'll make kids crazy. <laughs> and then I thought, I want to have them feel like they can tag up all over the, the maze. And at that point, you know, doing graffiti inside a gallery was not really a concept anybody had had yet. So I had met Crash through Charlie, Crash and Knock. Mm-hmm. And I asked them because they lived near Fashion Moda. They lived in the Bronx, and they were both 17 at the time. And they spray-painted it. And Fred was just, he was, you know, he was practically living in our house because they were making Wild Style. So I edited the film myself, and when I was editing the soundtrack, I thought, this film needs a narrative. So I wrote the rap, and then I said, hey, Fred, will you rap this rap I just wrote? <laughs> he goes, sure. So we rented... Writing lyrics hour. for Fat Freddy. We, we rented an hour of recording time, and he did it, and it's great. He did a really great job, and I'd say I, I wrote a good rap. I've, you know, I've, I haven't gotten back to that either. I'm going to have to do yes, some more seriously. Right? I mean, the way those songs are made these days, you probably could just send it off to those like Swedish dudes who do all the pr- production, and they'll be like, yeah, get a guy with a pit bull. That's a good idea, because actually... We remade the maze this summer, Crash and I, at his new space oh, yeah. in the South Bronx called Wallworks, and we shot a video, which we haven't edited yet, So, and, and the challenge is the sound edit, so maybe I'll contact those guys, get Fred to make a new, I gotta write him a new song. Oh, get, like, get like Earl <laughs> Sweatshirt you? to do it, you know, like it's somebody like <laughs> super now, and see if anyone even realizes it's yeah. not their lyrics, you know. I mean, I bet, like, Odd Future would be totally into that. Like, they'd be like, we're going to rap a rap that's 30 years old and see if anyone notices. Like, Tyler would be all over that, I think. Right? Justin's that's nodding. That's a great idea. Right? Like, like, has anything changed in all that time? I, one name sticks no. out like a sore thumb in that list to me is Saul Wick. Just to me, like, you're like, oh, these people want to get away from minimalism and the white cube. And I was like... Uh, speaking as a callow youth who knows nothing, like Saul Lloyd is like Mr. Minimalism to me. No, uh, he was not part of, he was not part of Colab. He's an older generation. He was not trying to get away from minimalism, but I was at a show at the Fondation Cartier in Paris a few years ago, and it was a summer street art show. And they had this whole series of Saul Lewitt Polaroids that he had taken of walls in New York in the early 80s, late 70s. So he was just making references for himself. I mean, he was also really known for, he was a big collector of young artists. He would go to the galleries all the time and somebody he'd never heard of. I remember he bought stuff out of Kiki Smith's first show. He'd go, this person has a spark to him. I'm going to buy it. So he had a huge art collection of unknowns. So... He did, as far as I know, he didn't ever do anything with graffiti, but it was just fascinating that, you know, when they were going through his estate, that they were like, wow, this guy took a lot of photos. Yeah, that is like, that's like art. hearing that John Cage has like an endless, like, series of Twisted Sister bootlegs in his basement or something. <laughs> 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 He's like so the opposite of that. It's, it sounds like a really interesting time just having all those people in one place. It was, it was, except then it went right into AIDS. Mm. It was an awesome time, but it was also, it didn't last that long before. By 86, we were deep into AIDS, and that was a horrible decade where, you know, half the people I knew were dying and died. In those days, there was no cure for it, so... How did you meet your art people when you first moved to New York? Well, because I immediately started working for Susan Pitt, who had been my teacher, but she she was pretty young. So I was in my 20s. She was in her middle yeah, 30s. Yeah, I know she's not And young. she was good friends with Red Grooms, mm. who shows at Marlborough and was a big deal in the 70s, even if you don't remember. I know. I'm still alive. Oh, Yeah. 
Okay, so Come on. she knew him, and she introduced me. And then I started going out with this guy, Peter Hutton, who was a filmmaker who teaches at Bard now. Anyway, he knew a lot of people. So through them, I, like, right away was in this art scene. Red Grooms had just finished this huge project called Ruckus Manhattan, which was... Um, a huge installation, a creative time. I think it was one of their first projects. And one of my friend, one of my colleagues on the billboard had worked on it and Charlie had worked on it. And so through them, I got to know that all, young artists that today would work for Jeff Koons at that moment, everybody was working for Red Groom. So through them, I got to know this whole nest of young artists when I started going out with Charlie, he had already gone to the Whitney program, so he knew he was sort of at ground zero of the art world. You know, he knew Gordon Mata Clark, who was already dead by the time I met Charlie, but he knew a lot of people. And in those days, there was no social media, so the way you know you you got to know people by going out to various bars and clubs. <laughs> you had to leave your house. <laughs> you had to leave your house. And then you'd see people and you'd give them little flyers and say, come to the Mud Club tomorrow. You know, it's like the first show I was in was a show that Keith Haring curated at the Mud Club because I had gotten to know him at the Times Square show and I thought he'd be great on the billboard and he wanted to put me, in, you know, and so we were just all making it up as it was going along. And I remember early on, Charlie one night saying, come on, Jane, get dressed. We're going to the mud club. And I, I had sort of squandered my day and it was like 8 p.m. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to get serious and get in my studio work. So I go, I, I, I can't go to the mud club. I got to work because really I was sort of intimidated of the cool, cool level there. He goes, this is work. So, you know, oh. I, I got dressed. I went to the mud <laughs> club and that's how really my career you know, everything happened by people you'd run into and they'd go, I don't know if you saw my little book, Hey Honey, Want a Lift of cartoons? You would appreciate this. It's it's all of erections. It was like a pickup <laughs> lines I was getting in my early years. And that's what Keith showed. And it was like a friend at the Mud Club I ran into said, oh, I want to, I'm going to publish some books. Do you have anything? And I was like, yeah, I have this series of drawings. Hey Honey, Want a Lift. And Keith did one, and Tom Otternis did one, and we sat in Keith's loft and each stapled our books, and it was a crazy time. And probably I did a million things with other people that aren't famous that I just am not remembering right now. But And then I knew people like Nan Golden from art school in Boston. So it was a exciting, exciting moment. And part of what was exciting about it was that New York was bankrupt and nobody cared there wasn't a lot of competition. There weren't a lot of artists. There was a lot of empty space. We could live, I could live fine working two days a week. Yeah. And pay health insurance and pay off my college loans. You know, I see young people today and I'm like, holy shit, how are they ever going to, it's much harder than it used no, to be. No, I mean, Ido, who made that Downtown 81 movie, he, I think he wanted to make a two, Downtown 2001 movie or he's like in 2002 or something. He came around and he was filming like a dancer and like, and he came around, he filled our apartment. It was like, we're doing all the same things, you know, like, or like putting together little zines and like, someone's like, oh, we're having a show at ABC No Rio and go and have a show, but it doesn't, nothing happens. (laughs) Like, like all those, like the way that I got my show is like somebody who was wealthy sold someone else who was wealthy and then I have an art show, you know, like all the, that, the activity that the sort of traditional clubby activity of hanging out with your friends and doing things and like making stuff and putting shows together. I don't know about John, but I've never gotten any of the things that I've done done through that. It was, it was never through sideways stuff. It was always like through falling ass backwards into having someone who was outside my social circle, who was just happened to be powerful, kind of notice what you were doing, which probably just speaks to more artists in New York, all like, you know, more competition probably the big one, but Edo, you know, he was interviewing me and he's like, so what's the scene? I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know if you would say there's a scene. Like I have friends who show art and they have friends who, uh, who show art. And then somebody's like, Hey, you should come to my show. And then like, you go to their show and then like, they have a show. That's the end of that story. (laughs) You know, like I'm gonna have a show in my loft. And then you do, (laughs) you know, like, like Andy Warhol does not show up and go, 
you, you, you are famous now. Part of the difference then was that there was, the art world was really small and there were no places for young artists. So like there was Costelli and O.K. Harris and about four other galleries in Soho, you know, made probably, and Mary Boone, I remember, was just starting. So they were, none of them were particularly interested in content. They were all doing minimalism then and conceptualism. So we're like, well, nobody we can see who has a gallery is going to want to show this stuff. And space is cheap and people had huge lofts. So we're like, well, let's just do shows for each other. Let's do our own shows. Let's throw our own party. Um, because things were not professionalized at that point, you know, somebody like Jeffrey Deitch could come and go, oh, I heard there was something happening. And partly all of this could happen because some of the people I was friends with were also critics. So there were people that were good at promoting things. So they put out the word. Then lots of other, it was just the right moment. Yeah. So since then, everything has gotten very professionalized, you know. So Patty Astor could go, she had a friend, Bill Stelling, who was a real estate agent. And she was like, let's make a gallery. I've met all these really cute artists. And Bill's like, well, I have an empty storefront in the East Village, you know, and it'll cost us 300 a month or some ridiculously little amount of money. I'll, pay, You know, he's like, well, I'll pay it and you find the artists. And, you know, her main thing was, which cocktail should we have for your opening? You know, like which color will coordinate? <laughs> which special cocktail will coordinate? You know, and like, I remember going in their office and they were opening the, the, the answering machine and there's like all these cockroaches all running around inside <laughs> it. It was so gross. <laughs> you know, this, so that was the other side of the East Village and then also that everybody was junkies. And you'd get mugged on your way to the gallery and on your way back, but... But you could live really cheap. As long as nobody knifed you, you were on easy street. And, and I, now I look at young artists and there's all these programs, there's post-grad programs and there's special grants for young artists. And, and when I meet young artists, because I've taught post-grad artists and they're always kind of like, well, where do I line up next? What do I apply for next? And the idea of just making things happen themselves is really foreign and maybe it's not so possible i mean there are all these opportunities that just didn't exist well all those programs were like created by those people like all the people you're talking about like kiki smith and like like the programs that exist now were largely a product of those generation of people going when i was a kid i didn't have a program there was nothing and then they then they they and their friends made them mm -hmm. and now there's a million of them but there's also a million like little spaces like every story you're telling it's like replace the names I can have the same story but it has a different ending mm -hmm. <laughs> and the different ending was and then someone else did that across the block on the same night and so nobody you know and then somebody else did it like, right. like two blocks away like I remember having an opening in London and my opening was mostly like pretty low-key because Banksy was having like a party like four blocks away at the same time I feel like if that story had been in 1981 we would have had one big show and we would have both. It's just, it's almost like that, that way of working succeeded too well. Right. For my generation, we looked at pop artists and went, oh, that looks like a lot of fun. Let's do that. And then the next generation that looked at us, well, I think group material came out of Collab. And I think that, you know, Damien Hurst beginning with that, what was that first huge show we did in London? I don't know the name of it, but yeah. I don't think it was sensation. But no, that was just... Anyway, it was the same idea of, like, let's just go in some crappy warehouse and we'll get every cool young artist we can find in London and, you know, we're going to knock everyone's socks off. It just... Everything's been professionalized and so many people have gone to business school. Yeah, so the economic model, and there's just way too many people, and now the art world is global, so you're not just competing with everybody in America. You're competing with everybody in China, too. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I was talking to a critic, and, and I was like, do you think that artists should pretend to be from another country if they just happen to have, like, their family has, like, a last name that's, like, you know, if they're a Mendez, should they pretend to be from South America? If they're a Chin, should they pretend to be from, like, like they live in China? And she's like, of course not. I'm a critic. Like, I would be irresponsible, but I can totally see why people would do it. 
the competition to be another artist in New York is having a show or having a group space or having a cool event. It's amazing. There's just like a lot of people. And the, the globalization of the art world, I think what I keep noticing is that most of those people that you find who are artists from somewhere else, from Ghana or Mexico or whatever, they're the super rich. Like I just said something of Gabriela Roscoe, you know, was like, this is my fabulous compound. And, you know, you just go, oh, my God, this guy can do anything he wants, even if he never made art. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the oligarchs of the world, children, you know, get to be art stars here in New York, too. (laughs) which also crowds the market a little bit for those of us that don't. You know, like artists in China, if you're successful, you can, like, have whole factories of people making, you know, stuffing wolves for you or whatever. That sounds totally like something that someone would make, too, just stuffed wolves. Yeah. We'll Somebody see next did. week. Oh, okay. I can't remember who. He had, like, a herd of wolves that were running into a glass wall that was owned by Deutsche Bank. I can't remember who it is, but some very famous Chinese artist. It's like, oh, yes, there's very good embalming factories in China. It's very cheap. Yeah. Because they done. And now there's all these people in Africa, like Alanatsui. And now we, there was an opening, and I can't remember the guy's name, who's from Ghana, who has a beautiful show up in the Lower East Side that's sort of Anatsui related. And I'm sure if he pays, you know, anybody anything there, they're probably really happy to help him. Yeah. I mean, there's poor artists everywhere. I'm not so I'm not really complaining about it. I hire people and I'm, you know, not paying them a zillion dollars. Sadly, there's lots of people who are willing and hungry to work these days and grateful. We've been talking kind of negatively about the art world. Should we just all give up? Should we just all say forget it? It sucks now? What should we do? Um, I, what I'm saying has nothing to do with the art world per se. I think the world is getting, oh, you know, okay. globalization is hard. I yeah. think it was always hard and maybe now it's harder. But my belief is that we're artists because we can't help it. Anybody who can do something else does because it's a hard life. And so we're not going to give up. And actually, I'm having a lot of fun. Good. It looks like you are. I'm interested in like a split that seems visible now between like Tom Otterness and Red Grooms and to some degree you. I don't know if you knew Joyce Kozloff, but. I didn't know. I know her work, but I never knew her. And the artists, like they had art that could be looked at, like the public, they had a public face of it, like a public art face that people would look at and go, oh, it's just friendly, happy public art. They would. They just saw it that way, and it could be used that way, or they could get that kind of commissions. And then the artists like Kiki Smith, I guess more Kiki Smith, and like other people who are probably like part of the same scene, who got seen as not as always kind of more. I wouldn't want to say dark, but like something something like not public artable about them, but some more uh, art forumy profile. And I was wondering if that's like a thing that was there at the time you felt like it was part of your work or not part of your work or whether it is something that is just after the fact for people from outside. And I'm just thinking that because I feel like John is totally like a public artable artist some days. And I realize I'm totally not. Nobody would ever ask me to do a mural that other human beings would see outside. But we don't think about that as our daily, you know, we, when we talk about art, that, that doesn't seem like a, a sensibility difference that's real to us. Yeah, that's sort of amazing that you're friends <laughs> making such different kinds of art. As far as that split, I think that people's aesthetics and goals were, well, what am I going to say here? I mean, I feel like Red Grooms was always from the time I was aware of him, and he's much older, so, I, you know, I wasn't around when he was making his first work, but his work was always kind of cheerful. And he, you know, is from, I don't know, where is he from? Kentucky or someplace. He's a Southerner and he's really in some ways like an outsider. Tom, Tom is from out West and he's also sort of an outsider. 
you know, his, some of his early work was much darker, but I think he decided early on that A, he needed to make a living. He wanted to make a living as a public artist. He wanted to have a factory. And to do that, he was going to have to tone down the darker aspects hmm. of his work. And, and his work, if you look at it, you know, it's all about money and corporate greed and stuff. So there is some heavy content, but yes, it's in a cheery package so that you don't notice it. So I always much. thought it was just like blatantly anti-capitalist, like super aggressively, but just because it was in bronze and it had these rounded figures, nobody realized it. He just did a playground like in Dubai, I think, in an <laughs> airport at Dubai. Yeah. Decapitated. <laughs> and you're like, workers, really? Right? I'm sure. <laughs> But I mean, I, I mean, your work became public artable at some point, but at the same time, it has this deep ambivalence about what you're painting. It has some darkness to it, yes, which I keep, in, in one level, I hope, oh, maybe I'll resolve all my, all my issues and it will lighten up. And, every, you know, like on purpose, I made the things in the subway lighter because I thought that corridor from Port Authority to Times Square... 100,000 people go through it every day. They're commuters. It's mostly the same people. You know, of that 100,000, 40,000 at least are people from New Jersey that come in in the morning, walk through that passageway, go to work, and come back. So they're seeing it twice a day. And I thought, these people's lives are hard enough. <laughs> My job. And they're going to see this work a lot. So I wanted to make it really varied. And I think of it related to animation so that you... There's some continuation from one to the next. You know, I, I got all my friends to pose for me with hats and horns. And surprise, everybody was wearing black. And I thought, wow, everybody in these black coats, they look like pilgrims. I thought, not the image we want. So I, in my mosaics, everybody's wearing these bright colors. Nobody in New York wears pink coats and yeah, yellow coats. Right. But I thought, we got to lighten this up so that it's... Life is hard in New York, and I was doing it right after the London subway bombing, and I, and I thought, I, I don't want to, yes, you know, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is but the goal, but in between, we have, you know, we can have some good times. And so it was like a conscious, this is one. it was like a conscious sort of. Very conscious. What's working with the MTA like? I love them. But, and I, but my one funny story is that well, they were great, and they liked my project. We started with 10 figures, and they found more money, and it grew to 68 figures, and God bless them. Wow. It was great, but I thought we were going to have lots of aesthetic discussions, and they, you know, they'd look at each figure and go, well, I don't know. Don't you think that one's a little too big? Or The only thing they said to me was, there are no exposed penises in here. Because <laughs> she knew my, hey, honey, want to look. It's like she, they didn't want to spend the time to look through all the figures. She was like, there's no flashers, right? We, we can't have a mosaic of anything illegal. And I said, I swear there are no exposed penises. And, and when I've talked to other artists, they sometimes go, well, how did you sneak past them? How did you trick them you know, into paying you to do something they didn't want? And I said, you know, I didn't want to trick them into doing something. they. I didn't want to go, gotcha, ha-ha. You know, I want, I thought, let me try to, you know, work with this client in a way that we'll all be happy. And there were these, you know, odd issues that I had, you know, I was like, the only thing that might be illegal is there's a person with a dog peeking out of their bag. I don't know if that's legal or if that dog should be in an, in an official carrier. They were like, we can live with the little dog. It's all right. It was a dachshund. A wonderful dachshund who sadly passed away this week. Oh. Yeah. But that dog is now immortalized forever. Yeah. So you've worked with them for a long time, the MTA, you said, right? Sandra Bloodworth, who, who started Arts for Transit in the MTA, was on the advisory panel of the Public Art Fund at the same time I was when I was doing my computer artist billboard project messages to the public so that was in like 82 we were both early on this so I just knew her a little bit from that and then when they decided to commission an artist to do a poster for each subway stop she invited me to do Times Square because she had been to my shows and knew I was painting Times Square 
And as part of the contract for those posters, they pay you not a lot of money and they get to keep the artwork. And at the time, I was very disgruntled about, you know, they're just paying me the price of the drawing and they can make refrigerator magnets out of it. But I, let, I gave in and did it. And she hung my drawing, my study, in her office. So decades later, when she was, when they were commissioning for Times Square, the big projects, their, their smaller projects are open calls and people can apply and do the smaller ones. They like to see if how well you work. A lot of artists may be great artists, but are not team players and they freak out and are difficult. And for their long projects, if they're gonna be working with you for a couple of years, they don't want anybody difficult. So I had done this little project and I wasn't too difficult. So for the big ones, they invite people. So they were gonna invite four people, five people to propose. And it was all people they had worked with in some capacity before. So they thought, we know these five are not crazies. Whoever gets it won't ruin our lives. So, you know, there was my drawing from the previous thing in her office. So she's like, hmm, who should I ask to propose? <laughs> I'll ask Jane. The other thing is I had been invited to propose to two other ones that I didn't get, which was a lot of work. And I, you know, did all the stuff and proposed to this panel and then they didn't pick me. And I wasn't a bitch about it. Mm. I might have won. And when I did the one for Times Square, I thought, if you don't pick me for this one, I'm never doing one of these again. But some people, when they didn't get it for the first one, would go, fuck you, I hate you. And they'd be like, okay, we'll never see you again. So I was somewhat of a good sport in the previous ones. And the previous ones were like not a station that I had any relevance to. So I was like, it's fine, I didn't get this. I wasn't meant to do this. I'm not dying to do this. And then when Times Square came along, I was like, I own this one. I'm, I'm doing this. And they felt like my proposal had the most relevance to the site. And I wanted to do something that would be somewhat of a, a tourist destination that's not part of some chain. And people do selfies in front of it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Which I'd like to do some social media presence with, but I have never gotten around to that one either. But maybe I'll still have time. Thank you so much. Get rid of those errs and ums. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was really nice cool. talking to you. Yes. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Jane Dixon's latest work at the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian Institution in D.C. This work was also worked up in a show called Paradise, New York City, Underground 1980-1983. That's at Stephen Harvey Fine Art on Forsyth Street in New York till November 14th. She'll also have a two-person show next March with Mongolian artist Gama at Pace University. That one will have a catalog. And last but definitely not least, next summer, Boo Hooray is publishing a book of her Times Square drawings, paintings, and photos. Also, I have more of my artwork at my Instagram page, which is John Mejias Peping, or Tumblr, All Things Peping. And Zach has a new children's book with writer China Mival. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We Eat Art is sponsored by No One Yet and is produced by Papin and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and the editor is Justin Nasher. Everybody... Come on, do you think? Everybody get up and dance and sing.